about a month ago, we, uh, we heard a sermon on uh, prayer, didn't we, uh, from Ephesians chapter 3, if you remember. Um, and we, we had this particular challenge, I think, as we saw that Paul was the apostle who held out the Lord Jesus, the immeasurable riches that are found in Christ, but he was also the apostle who prayed. And I felt particularly challenged, and I think we ought to have felt challenged by that as a church. And so I wanted to share with you, um, since then... I've been using this. Uh, it's a little timer. Uh, you can set the time on it. You can, you know, you know, spin left and right and get the right time. I've been using this um, as a way to help me pray. I'll set this timer for about 15 minutes at the start of each day as I come here, and I'll just spend that 15 minutes praying for us as a church, praying for the different things in life uh, that God might be at work amongst us. Um, and it's been really helpful. Uh, it's been really great. I wanted to share that with you because that might be a tip that you might use to help you pray. Uh, as we came out of that, hearing from God's word that we ought to be a church that prays, what are some little tips that you can use? Well, well here's one. Um, I have the luxury of being a pastor, so if I set my time and I'm on the clock, 15 minutes to pray, that's com completely acceptable for me to do that in my workplace. Uh, but you in your workplace might not have that luxury um, but if you just had a timer on your phone or something and you set it for two minutes a day and you set aside that time just to pray, just to say, please, sorry, thank you. Just please, something you want help with, sorry, sorry to God for the way I've sinned in the last day or two, and please. No? Yeah, is that right? <laughs> thank you, sorry, please. There you go. Um, you get the picture. Um, just a little tip for you um, as we've been thinking about how we might grow in our prayer together. Um, let's read Psalm 90 together. We're going to be spending time in Psalm 90. We are having a two-week break from our Ephesians series, and this morning we're looking at Psalm 90. Let's read that together. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of O man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is still but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, 
How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Our great God, you are the sustainer and creator of time. To you, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But we are but a breath. It will not be long until every eye here turns dim in death. Our great God, forgive us our iniquities and our secret sins. For these we are justly brought to death. Our Father, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom and satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days and establish the work of our hands. These things we pray by Jesus and for Jesus, who conquered death. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Darwin Awards. Uh, Their website tells me that they, in the spirit of Charles Darwin, commemorate individuals who protect our gene pool by making the ultimate sacrifice of their own lives. They tell stories of how real people have died. And they've died for the stupidest reasons. Here's one example of a story they tell. A powerful ruler is not immune to the consequences of his actions. Over a thousand years ago, Louis III ruled West Francia for three short years, a brief reign marked by military success. King Louis conquered new tracts of territory and he defeated Viking raiders. But alas, despite amazing success, amazing loss soon followed. On a fine autumn day in Saint-Denis, France, The king glimpsed a beautiful woman he needed to woo and pursue. On horseback, he chased her. Clearly not seeing seeing where he was headed, he whacked his royal skull on an innocent door lintel. A fatal blow, his cranium fractured. King Louis III died to teach us an important lesson. There are ways to suppress the depressing reality of death. The Darwin Awards are, yes, hilarious, but the Darwin Awards are incapable of dealing with death's sting. On the other hand, and this is more likely in our culture, we can suppress it by just pretending that death doesn't exist. Death is best contained behind a closed door in a hidden ward at the back of a hospital. Neither approach will do, nor any other approach that tries to suppress the encroaching reality of death in our world. Psalm 90 smacks us in the face. 
death is spoken about frankly and openly. We are brought to an end, it says. Our days will pass away. Our years are soon gone and we will fly away. Psalm 90 is the only prayer of Moses recorded in the Psalms. And in his prayer, he addresses the what, the why, and the how. He addresses the what, life is short, you are going to die. The why, God's wrath against sin. And the how, how do we live with death? You want to learn how to live with death? Let's get into Psalm 90. Psalm 90 begins with an address. Moses praised the Lord on behalf of the Lord's people. Verse 1, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses prays to our God, our God who is eternal, the one who existed before the mountains. The one who created the mountains. The one who exists from everlasting to everlasting. And as creatures bound by time, the eternity of God, his eternality, can be difficult for us to get our heads around. See, because it's not just that God is eternal in that he has existed for infinite years in the past and an infinite number of years into the future, although that is true of God, what God's eternality is saying is actually that God is outside of time. He exceeds the bounds of measurement. We as creatures have this mode of existence where there's the future, which then becomes the present, and the present very quickly becomes the past. And it's a mode of existence that never stops. The future becomes the present and the present becomes the past. And that never stops. But future, present and past are not categories that exist for God. He is the complete fullness of eternal life. He is eternally present to every moment of time that exists, future, present, and past. In answer to the question, which of these two is closer to describing God's eternality? One minute or a thousand years? The answer is neither. Both fall infinitely short of describing God's eternality. One theologian put it this way, The God of boundless being is not to be scanned by the brain of a silly worm that has breathed but a few minutes in the world. Our God, Father, Son and Spirit is eternal. Not in time, but the creator and sustainer of time. And so, of course, as Moses says there, he is the most secure dwelling place for his people. He does not change. Cultures change, kings rise and fall, nations rule and fail, but our God 
is forever. Moses would have known this well and and would have considered this God his dwelling place, uh, particularly perhaps when he lived when at a time when the Lord's people were enslaved by a wicked and cruel Pharaoh. But God plucked Pharaoh off his throne with ease and displayed to the ancient world his infinite power. And so, of course, he says to his God, you are our dwelling place. The eternal God is a dwelling place that we can find security in, isn't he? And yet, verse 5, we are like a dream. Like grass that has life for a short time, then withers and fades. We are swept away like a flood. Our time here is a whisper in a windstorm. There's a coastal region in California called Pacifica, and they're facing a billion-dollar problem. Housing built with million-dollar views has become housing that is untenable. Here's what a local government lawyer had to say about it. Nobody wants to come to terms with what's happening, he says, watching as people stroll the beach barefoot and smiling. We want this to be here forever. We want to be able to walk along this beach and enjoy these beautiful houses and this beautiful view forever. But, he says, you can't beat the sea. You cannot beat time. From the moment of birth, the tide of death starts rising. You are going to die. And everything you have ever worked for will be consumed in a moment. Moses here wants us to imagine our lives differently to what the dominant culture that we live in imagines. So God wants us to imagine that we own a plot of land on the Pacifica coast. Everything in that plot of land represents absolutely everything in your life. Every dollar you've earned, every relationship you've had, every house you've owned or built, every car you've driven, every hobby you've had, every minute, every hour, every week you've had breath in your lungs, every word you've spoken, every career you've built, every mortgage you've paid off, every test you've passed or failed, everything is on that plot of land. And everything will be swept away by the ocean of death. Death will swallow everything up. That's where we live our lives. We live our lives on the Pacifica coast, where the tide of death is slowly creeping up. But in reality, it's very quick. Do you believe that to be true? I mean, sure, we could say it. Yeah, sure, Moses, we know it's fast. That's fine. But do you really believe that to be true of your life? 
Because this is a reality that ought to change us significantly. If we had to do a quick symptom check, three things, your bank statements, your calendar, your dreams. Your statements, your calendar, your dreams. Imagine someone having complete access to those three things. What would they notice? What would they see of your money? What would they see of your time? What would they see of your hopes and dreams? Are they tied to the things that are going to be swallowed up by death? Or could someone look into those things and say, oh, this guy knows his life is about to be gone. Or are they bound up with things that are eternal? More on that later. So that is the what. Our life here is brief. But Moses also goes on to explain the why. We see it there in verse 7 and 8. We are brought to an end by God's anger. We are dismayed by his wrath. Verse 8, our iniquities and our secret sins are laid bare before him. It's neither an accident or natural that we die. Death is our sentence. Romans 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. Death is not natural. As Disney would would say, part of the circle of life. Death is not accidental. God intentionally and justly cursed humanity when humanity turned in rebellion against God. So death is our sentence, not our intended lot. It's not natural, but it's an unwelcomed intrusion. An intrusion we feel deeply when it takes away those we love. And here we learn what sits underneath it all. Every one of us has sinned. Every human heart has produced wicked intent. Every human record will show evil behavior. And so, there's the awkward yet necessary realization that each of us needs to have. You are going to die, and you're going to die because you have sinned. And if the outlook wasn't bleak enough as it is, verse 9, our days pass away under your wrath, and our years come to an end like a sigh. And verse 10, our span, if we're lucky enough, for 70 to 80 years passes with trouble and toil. It says God's wrath not only lays us down in death, but it also gives us toil and trouble all our days. That's our lot in life. That's what characterizes the lot that we are on the Pacifica coast. And verse 11 asks the question, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What he's asking is, who is it that actually believes this to be true? Who actually realizes that this is our lot in life? And the implied answer is no one. Our bent as humans is to suppress the reality of death. 
just like those living on the California coast in Pacifica. They suppressed the truth of their impending destruction of their homes. But it doesn't change the reality, does it? The human condition is a desperate one. And it's characterized by a a desperation that we want to suppress, isn't it? But that doesn't change the reality. There's a bookmark on my desk that says these words, readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. Readiness to die is the first step in learning to live. Moses isn't Eeyore. As much as he sounds like Eeyore in this psalm so far, Moses isn't Eeyore. You guys know Eeyore? The unceasingly depressing donkey, you know, friend of Winnie the Pooh, who looks at everything and is utterly depressed all the time. Moses isn't Eeyore. Now, what Moses is doing in this prayer, Moses is at war. He's at war with our hearts. He's bringing in the battering ram. He wants to demolish and flatten all of our false hopes, all our denials of reality, all the paper mache structures that we build up in our life, Moses wants us to see that none of those will stand. He wants us to see that there is only one foundation, only one hope. And the only hope we have is found in the eternal God. And so in verses 13 to 17, Moses cries out to God and he prays God. Because if God does nothing, we have no hope. We're left in sin. We're left in death. And so he prays. Verse 13, he says, return. Return the wrath that you have against humanity. Or to put it another way, turn back. Have pity on your servants. He prays in verse 14, satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love. And there it is. There's the foundation of it all. The foundation to build your life on. The satisfying love of God. What is it that will make us rejoice and be glad all our days? The steadfast love of the Lord. The love of the Lord that is unmoving and unshakable. As unshakable as the mountains the Lord has made, is how unshakable his love is for us. And get this, as eternal as our God is, is how eternal his love is for us. That presents a fairly significant question for us at this stage. How can his love for us be eternal if death is final? How can his love for us be so permanent when our life passes like a dream? The answer comes in the New Testament with the coming of the Lord Jesus and Paul the Apostle says these words as he reflects on Jesus' life. Let me read out a few verses from chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 20, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is our hope. The risen, reigning, conquering, eternal Lord Jesus, who has the victory over death. Here is our only hope, the risen Lord Jesus. And so in the Lord Jesus, we find the answer to Moses' prayer. A prayer that in this brief life, with the rising of death ever coming for us, here is hope, here is life. To draw this to a close, uh, we're just going to notice that Psalm 90 and 1 Corinthians 15 end in a fairly similar way. Moses there in verse 17 prays that God would establish the work of our hands. 1 Corinthians 15 finishes with these words from Paul. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Moses knows that he's going to die. He knows the shortness of life. But in the Lord, could it be that there is a work, there is something that we could build that is not in vain? Could it be that there is something that we can give our lives to that death will not swallow up? Could it be true? Because we know that a lot of our work will fade, don't we? A lot of the things that we give ourselves to will have life for a short time, but then will fade and wither. But could it be that there's something that the rising tide of death cannot destroy? I thought of a few examples that came to mind. The work of raising children to know and love the Lord. The work of sharing the gospel with a grandchild. The work of telling your work colleagues that you are a Christian, perhaps in the hope that you could share more about Jesus. The work of telling a friend at school about Jesus, inviting them to church. The work of being a GBC Kids or GBC Youth Leader teaching the Word of God. These are examples of things that death will not swallow up. I saw this quote come up on social media this week from a reliable source, I promise. Listen to this quote. 50% of Australian churches have 50 people or less in them. It's a complicated stat to hear not the first time, so I'll read it again. 50% of Australian churches have 50 people or less in them. If you look at the field of our country rather than the barn of our local churches, you see that 98% of people in this land don't trust in Jesus. 
That is millions upon millions of people who are not ready for our Lord Jesus Christ to return. We've got to face reality. We can't sweep it under the carpet. Heaven and hell are real, and real people go there. Don't be fooled into thinking that because our church building can look full most of the year that the work is done. Australia is in a state of emergency. And let me be clear, we're not just talking about the morality of Australian politics or the breakdown of Christian values in our culture, as real and as concerning as those things are. We're talking about something actually far more fundamental than that. Let me read that sentence again from the quote. 98% of people in this land don't trust in Jesus. Millions upon millions who are just not ready for our Lord Jesus to return. Could it be that God has put us here today with lives that will pass like a dream, but, a, but lives abounding in the work of the Lord, work that will last eternally? Could it be that by his spirit, he might enable us to be a people who hold out the gospel to the world around us? To be a church that builds one another up. To be a a church that's holding out the gospel to our next generation. We've seen that our life is short, haven't we? Our lives are are lived on the Pacifica coast of California, where the rising tide of death is coming. But in the Lord Jesus, we have a hope beyond the grave. And because we have this hope, the Lord calls us to abound in his work. Join with me in praying to finish. Our great God, you are the sustainer and creator of time. To you, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But we are but a breath. It will not be long until every eye here turns dim in death. Our great God, forgive us our iniquities and our secret sins. For these we are justly brought to death. Our Father, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom, and satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days, and establish the work of our hands. These things we pray by Jesus and for Jesus, who conquered death. Amen.